0: Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. My name's Jonathan Cake, and a few weeks ago, when I was previewing this season, I think I promised you a dame. My first dame, and I also promised you a star of the TV show Succession. One of the great TV shows, if you saw it, of, well, ever. And I wonder if anyone twigged that there is one person who is both... Yes, and she's my guest this week, and she is Dame Harriet Walter. Dame! Dame! <laughs> Dame, she's good. Oh dear. <sighs> Had to cut that bit out. Look, you know Harriet, if you watched Succession, as the surgically vicious Caroline Collingwood, brilliant, brilliant characterization of the mother of the terrible Roy boys. If you didn't see Succession, you know, from Ted Lasso. If you didn't see Ted Lasso, you know, from Killing Eve. Essentially, she's been all in all the best TV shows of the last, what, five years, ten years. But she's also, of course, one of our very greatest theatre actors. Olivier Award winner, Tony nominee. She's burned through all the great parts for women in the classical repertoire, so then she burn through some of the men's parts too as you'll hear us discuss and you'll hear me trying to persuade her to burn through more of the men's parts why stop there i just saw her in the national Theatre's production rebecca frecknell's production of the house of bernarda alba and she was just incendiary on stage she really is something else oh we also burned through time Yakking to each other. So please, I've split this into two. Join me for Act Two of my chat with Harriet Walter. It's really good stuff. We met a couple of weeks ago at my friends James and Kate's house in West London. Thank you, James and Kate. And it's definitely a lovely house. Harriet admired it and its soft furnishings. But like many of my, it seems, recording locations, perhaps not entirely, how to say this, hourly sovereign not completely sonicus intacticus. what i mean is there was some noise it's it's not completely silent i don't like podcast studios they feel very sterile i like being in real spaces but with real spaces you get wind down the chimney i didn't mind the wind down the chimney felt atmospheric like we were sort of huddled in a crofter's hut in the highlands of scotland or something But the bloke laying the bricks next door was a a bit of a pain. (laughs) But look, he didn't lay very many. It's Dame Harriet Walter. She's worth forging through a little light construction for. Here's Act 1 of my chat with the national treasure that is Harriet Walter.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door
2: Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr Cake and Ms Walter to the stage, please. This is your beginners.
1: I'm going to point out that that wobbles. Oh, no, it doesn't. I've just hmm. secured it. Well I was thinking it might make a noise. But we don't mind real noises like no, the wind I, in the fireplace. No,
0: I quite like a bit of yeah. life.
1: Yeah. Am I sitting near enough? You're
0: sitting perfectly. Okay. Your your posture is as always. <laughs> <No>. exemplary. <laughs> my God, I just have to say, an image just cr- flashed across my mind of you in the last play you did, House of Bernarda Alba. Yeah. By Lorca, by way of Alice Birch, who did the adaptation of it, in which you played Bernardo. And your back, when you turned round, in that extraordinary coat. You know, we think of theatre, don't we, as a sort of, I do anyway, as a kind of verbal medium, as a medium of language. More and more and more, I find it's images.
1: Oh, definitely. I, I feel guilty about that, because we're supposed to be dealing with words and ideas and stories and character but what i take away forever the thing i remember decades later is often an image Mm. and also and the way theater photography that idea of when you look at books of stills of plays or programs of plays you've seen it's often the photographs that jog your memory and put you back there and that's all we've got, because other than those photographs, it's ephemeral and it's, it's gone. Mm. But the photographs kind of – it's not that they become a substitute for, for the experience, but they trigger the memories of the experience with any
0: luck. Well, this production, Rebecca Frecknell's production of, that you were just in, which was Sublime, was intensely visual because she'd done this extraordinary thing of making the house, the titular house – divided up into its constituent bedrooms, all of which you could see, or rooms, all of which you could see
1: all the time. Incredibly daring idea. And also, I mean, we knew theoretically right from the beginning that that's what was going to happen. And the benefit of it for an actor was that you never left the stage. Now, some people would think that's awful, because I like to go and have a fag on the balcony, or I like to do the crossword in my dressing room or ring my boyfriend but I love actually being involved in the evening's work all evening and quite often even if I'm not supposed to be on stage all the time I'll spend quite a lot of time in the wings so that I'm in touch with what's going on between the audience and the play it's like it's very thin line really where everything happens it's just a sort of narrow place where everything happens which is you know the front line of the stage, really, and everything that comes from behind it and out to the audience is is all that's happening. Mm. So everywhere else in the building can easily f- be or feel disconnected from that thing that's happening. And I'm always amazed by, you know, the fact that I can just be sitting there having a cup of coffee and then go on and go to be or not to be. or You know, mm. it is really odd that we can walk through the the, the looking glass, as it were, so easily. Um, And so it helped
0: not breaking that thin, delicate membrane by being on stage during Bernardo Albo.
1: It had other effects, which was that we had to listen to one another all the time. And occasionally you get a thing where, because I sometimes think, wouldn't it be good if we had a conductor present at every performance, (laughs) you know, if a director was a conductor? Because although, I, you know, I don't want some, you know, martinet to tell me how to pace something, at the same time... There is freedom within that. It doesn't preclude you having your own rhythms and your own ideas and your own spontaneity at best. If somebody has laid down some parameters about how to play a scene, how fast it should be or how slow. And, of course, you can a director can do that in rehearsals, but when they've left, when the show's up and running, it's our baby Mm. and we can do what we like. And some, well, within reason, and some... Actors have been known to hijack that situation and, you know, draw it all towards themselves or milk a speech for too long, leaving everybody else feeling helpless on the edge. I mean, there are some pretty catastrophic things that can go wrong in performance because an actor, to be really simplistic, is being self-indulgent, i.e. thinks the whole thing's about them. With The House of Bernardo Albert, we were all on all of the time. And because our lines interwove a scene that was taking place on the first floor would happen at the same time as a scene taking place on the ground floor. And that is a very daring supposition that the audience can take in two conversations at once. But of course we can. Our brains can take in all sorts of things at once. And we only have to glance somewhere with a blink of an eye to see what's going on. Rather like in film editing, you can just blink at something and tell quite a large amount of the story. So given that that was a brave decision, I thought, my God, is this going to work? You know, your your cue was not necessarily within the scene you're playing. Your cue might be a line that's coming from the ground floor. So it's almost like being in an orchestra where you've got to listen. And when that flute phrase comes in, you put in your phrase, you know, that really held the production together. We never sort of wavered two minutes either side of One hour 57 for the whole play, do you know what I mean? Some nights it was 58, some nights it was 56. But, you know, that doesn't happen usually over a run. Usually it gets longer. I actually relished that because although it's quite sort of, it makes you be quite disciplined, at the same time you can be very free within that discipline once you get into the swing of it.
0: But because of this, the way this was particularly designed, when you, for example, went to your bedroom which happened frequently, and indeed every other character would go to their respective bedrooms. We had sort of six, seven, eight, nine different stories yeah. we could watch. Yeah. It was that wonderful privilege of slicing a play in half so you weren't just seeing the characters who were foregrounded group. were speaking at the time. You, the lives of all of that household continued, but I have to say... It's also quite tricky because once you give an audience that autonomy, that wonderful autonomy, which is part of the theatre-going experience anyway, it's not a cinema where we're told by an editor what image we're consuming next. We we have power to look wherever we like. Well, I have to say, I looked quite a lot at you.
1: Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but how could one? That's probably not built in. You know, that's probably how. The play works as well, isn't it? I mean, Bernardo's not a huge part, funnily enough. I mean, she doesn't have the longest speeches or the most scenes, but she does dominate the way it's written. Things spring from her. And having her actually in the building was a wonderful duality. People were reacting to her not being in the room by being much freer with one another or whatever it was. But still, the parameters of the conversation were dictated by the fact they had to behave in a certain way or live in that house or not go out or be in mourning or whatever it was. They were there because of something Bernarda had dictated. But when she wasn't in the room, they could sort of slack one another off or be quarreling sisters. And at the same time, Bernarda, what I found interesting, could drop her authoritarianism and just sit on her bed and contemplate or look out of the window at the landscape.
0: When you got undressed, I have to say, it was, I hope this doesn't sound too creepy. It was extraordinary because, of course, people didn't know, don't know the play. Bernarda rules this. It's the death of her husband. And she decrees that her daughters, five, six, five, five will mourn for eight years. She's a kind of symbolic figure for the repressive... Spanish. The Catholic
1: Church, the fascist Church, um, and the regime, and and the army all kind of fascism, about exactly. to get together and run the country, which yeah.
0: eventually killed Lorca, the playwright, of yeah. course. Yeah, and so it was when a woman of that power and that repressive power, particularly, shows this moment of vulnerability, like we all do. It was impossible to tear one's eyes away because you're seeing literally somebody making themselves a human being again vulnerable yes. again.
1: Yes, I mean if you imagine sort of seeing yeah. Hitler sitting in a bath or yeah. something, you know. Yes. It does emphasize that we're all the same underneath and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And yes, I think that's right that because she seems so asexual and anti-bodies yeah. and anti everything physical. And yet she's wearing this quite frilly night <laughs> night clothes and things.
0: Well, this is what you always do brilliantly, that sense that you're bi- you're you're in touch with what made you you all the time. I think this is an extraordinary, you know, I suppose it's a it's a quality that actors should aspire to, but, but you achieve all the time. That sense of understanding the totality, even if you're playing a sort of monstrous figure like that, of what disappointment, repression, unhappiness has created the person who visits disappointment, repression, and unhappiness on her own kids.
1: Yes. I mean, I suppose I really, when I try and sort of sometimes think what it is that I really want to achieve, I started in this profession thinking the theatre could change the world. I now sort of think it can change corners of the world. It really, it can set off change. It mm-hmm. can, it can have a ripple effect. If it's times in with the zeitgeist, it can have a huge uh, effect. But as I've got older, I'm much less sort of, um, I have, less hubris and just try and get my corner right. And I think one of the little aims that I have in my little corner is to muddy up judgments and Mm. kind of make it more difficult for people to think they've got who somebody is. Because I think in everyday life we need that. I mean, we're all rushing to judgments. And the more I can muddy those boundaries and say, actually... There's a bit of all of those things in all of us. Mm. I think I've sort of achieved something tiny. That's what interests me. The energy you get to perform something comes from your desire to tell a certain story, or to tell a, or to make a certain comment, or to explore a certain situation. And I think that there is that with Bernardo Alba that you think, why am I not like that? Um, what is it that makes her like that and me like me? Uh. You know, and those questions bring about. Something that's almost like a hybrid, where you're finding the her in you and the you in her, and that makes the evening really interesting <laughs> for you. Yeah. You, the performer, it gives you the the sort of engine to keep going because you're constantly asking those questions. Do you miss her? Not at all. No, I don't miss her. Ten, fifteen years ago, I might miss a character I just played, but now I feel it's it's important at my age, to be able to live in the moment and not dwell on the past and not deny the past, but not get stuck in it and nostalgic. Yeah, it, It's it's quite a difficult discipline. The world at the moment is making me nostalgic for another time that was happier, but you become very aware that, that you've got to get up and go on with today. Mm. And so that happening in my life, that sort of time in my life, means that, okay... Last night, goodbye, everybody. That was great. On to the next.
0: I came to see it on the very last night of the run. And you and the girls, your daughters, had this lovely moment right at the end, this climactic crescendo. I mean, it's shocking and heartbreaking at the same time. And then when the lights came back up again, you were all hugging. You were in a circle of a big hug together. Normally, I'm not a huge fan of the private lives of the actors being I shared agree. on stage. But there's something about finishing that play and that play particularly and the bond between you and reasserting. I'm sort of feeling emotional to thinking about it. Reasserting who you were to each other outside yeah, the play. Yeah. that felt terribly moving.
1: It was a particularly great bunch of people, I must say. I think most people say that in interviews, don't they? They yeah. always say, "Oh, oh people gotcha. working with me were so lovely."
0: But as as right it kind of bastard. really what, as opposed to he was a right. He was a right
1: pastor. Which even if you thought it, you wouldn't be able to say it. But there wasn't a weak link. There wasn't anyone who didn't bring a huge amount to the show, and there was really equal commitment, even from people who had very little to do. So I just found that really moving, actually. Mm. And nobody thought it was their evening, you know. I mean, it's partly built into the play and certainly the production that it was a real ensemble piece. And I was reminded that that's what I really love about theatre work is that, you know, I'm an ensemble player, really, mm. and I like that.
0: I love your lack of sentimentality about finishing and moving on now, which maybe you didn't have <laughs> before. But are there parts that haunt you? Are there, is there anything that you you find returning to you between sleep and waking or...
1: Yes, it's interesting because this thing about this hybrid that you create where a part becomes partly you and you become partly that part, there are parts, certainly I suppose all the time, it's almost as like I've, I've grown up through the parts I've played so that there are things that I've had to reach for that weren't very natural to me or I didn't think were natural to me in order to play a part. And then they become part of your musculature. They become part of your who you are. It's its like you've developed new muscles and they've now become part of your, your body that you carry around all the time. So there are some parts that it's not that I yearn back to them or anything, but that, you know, when I'm sort of in a very sort of conscious moment of, you know, who am I kind of moment, those parts might sort of come back and say that was very you or you were very in that part. And then others that really don't, that were such a stretch that I'm quite happy to take the coat off and hang it up forever, you know. And usually Shakespeare parts, you have to dig into you. They have to become part of you growing up.
0: Totally. Um, You have to get bigger, don't you? You have to get bigger in every way. Otherwise, you're going to be humiliated. That's the way I've always felt about it. The scope of them is so huge that you must grow a bigger brain, bigger heart, bigger balls. And you've it's
1: all a- you've got, really, is, is you and your – it's not like he says Lady Macbeth has got long, dark hair and, you know, she's 38 and, <laughs> you know, some of the, the data that you get given in a modern play, for right. instance, when she comes from Liverpool. So then you work on the Liverpool accent and you get the long, dark hair and you're halfway there. With Shakespeare, you've got nothing except the language. That's it. And the language contains your thoughts, your feelings, the rhythms, everything. And so all you can do is plug into the language, and that's all you've got. And language crystallizes in your head. You know, that time when you move off the book, when you haven't got it, you know, like a barrier in front of you or or a shield to protect you. When you take it away and you have got to literally have absorbed those words into your skin and into your thinking, then they become part of you and that's how you're thinking that day. You can't really then extricate that from your mind. I mean, it'll be at the back of your mind, it'll be in storage, but it's sort of it's become part of, of how you're wired. That's beautifully put. Do you
0: remember the first time you went to the theatre?
1: Well, yeah, when I was a kid, I saw Peter Pan Did and you? things like that. Yeah.
0: Was there a particular childhood theatre-going experience that you thought, hang on?
1: No. It, there's a total disconnect. First of all, you can't compare yourself, so you don't know, am I responding to this differently from the little girl sitting next to me? You know, sure. we're all very excited to be seeing Peter Pan. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and you know, I just have one older sister and we both sort of would come home and hum the tunes and pretend to be everybody. You know, that that's sort of what kids do. <laughs> Does it oh, matter, this that tap Someone's basically this? working next door. Oh, I see. Does it matter? <laughs> it will these mics them. pick it up? I suppose
0: or? they will. They probably will. Well, I don't know quite what Well, there's somebody to-
1: working next door. Let's put it out there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm rather enjoying the underscoring of mm. this sort of feels rather dramatic. So there wasn't a light bulb moment no, when you were watching? there
1: wasn't a light bulb moment. And then there was a moment when, as a child, we, I was at this dancing school. we learnt ballet and ballroom dancing and stuff. And every year they did a charity matinee for the NSPCC in a West End theatre. And all us little darlings got sort of, our mothers were backstage putting their lipstick on us. And and we went out there and did our little dance or whatever it was. And I hated it. And I never, you know, I I was sort of, my sister went and did it much sooner than I did. And, you know, I thought, no, I I can't do this. I really didn't want to show off and do it, you know. It wasn't that I didn't want to show off. I showed off in in our home, but I didn't want to be in the limelight. I didn't have that yearning at all. And then years later, four or five years later, I'd go to the movies, and it was movies really that made me think, oh, I like the focus. It was Hayley Mills because there was right. a girl. She was a little bit older than me, and she was the focus of attention. Yeah. And basically, I think a lot of it is the desire for attention. To matter, to be important, to all those things you're thinking to be important. Yeah. I think that was what it was. I remember reading Ian McEwan's Atonement, and he has a whole chapter about this thirteen-year-old girl and her internal life and her internal thoughts and being in wonder at the thought that everybody else was the centre of their life in the same way that she was the centre of hers. And you know, and it was that idea of getting into the centre of somebody else's life. Yeah that fascinated me and still does and I think that was what took me into to acting rather than showbiz or makeup or lights that idea of empathy yeah the idea that you could absolutely be somebody else you know we can't but that's always the 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 aspiration that keeps evading us you know but in that process of going for that over the years I've discovered how much, you know, as I've said before, how much going out to reach another character brings that character into you as well. It's a sort of two-way traffic. And it's just sort of how I'm made, you know, and you sort of acknowledge that that's the way your brain works and other people's brain works in, you know, they become a scientist or they're brilliant sculptor or they're a TV newscaster or whatever, you know, these other jobs that people... I think it's fascinating that we all find our niche. You know, we all find the thing that is an expression where, of us. We, where we we suit where we fit. Yeah, yeah. If we're lucky, of course, yeah. if we get jobs at all, sure. Do
0: you remember when you were first
1: on stage? <clears throat> was it at school? Yes, at school. Yes, I do. And again, the very very first was you know who wants to be in school play. I can absolutely remember. I was sitting behind a desk, and I sat. I went under the desk. I did not want to
0: put my <laughs> really? hand up. because of the dancing experience, or that sort of sense of not Just wanting to be. Just the whole. I suppose it yeah. was a
1: little bit later than uh, I was about the same age actually. I was sort of seven or eight. Right. Acting? No, no, please don't make me do that. And so, because everybody had to be in it, I got a small part. I remember it quite well, in a funny way. I think one of the things that happened was that I spoke quite good French. I was quite good at French mm. and I was quite good at acting. So I wasn't the best French speaker and I wasn't the best actor, but I was the best actor who could speak French. <laughs> so we did French plays. Ah. And that's how I started. Did you? Doing French plays or scenes from French plays in, in my sort of, you in, know, like pre-11 years old. In French? In French. Oh, little on. scenes. Très chic. Très chic. And then at proper school... Boarding school. Um, when I was older, I did Le Malade Imaginaire. I played Argan, who is the main old chap. Of course, you know, I learnt the whole play, and of course, I was doing A level. We were doing Le Malade Imaginaire for A level, so of course, I passed with flying colours because I could just quote chunks oh. of the play.
0: <laughs> and that was the beginning of you playing the big part, whatever gender it,
1: whatever was gender it was. was yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, which of yeah. course, then you reclaimed. Triumphantly between 2012-2017. That's right. When you did these three very celebrated Mm -hmm. Shakespeare plays, uh, Julius Caesar, in which you played Brutus, Henry IV, in which you played the title role, and Tempest, in which you played Prospero, with Philadelphia Lloyd, guest on this podcast, who talked very feelingly about you, Mm -hmm. calls you Harold. <laughs> so sweet. She actually says something to you on the episode. She says, Harold, if you're listening. <laughs> wait, wait, you call her Harold? Um, <laughs> you did these three plays in a, in a, in a five year span with the collaboration of a, a, a theatre, a prison theatre group called Clean Breaks. Is that right? And the trope of the pieces was that i don't know why i'm describing this you i didn't want to have to make you do it again Mm -hmm. um was that you are inmates in a women's prison who are putting on these shakespeare plays and it was a a sensation sort of almost incredibly actually to the the idea that it, it seems sort of amazing to us now to me now in 2024 reading about this and sort of filling myself up with this when i was researching philida as well as you that it caused such a sensation at the time, yeah, that, that it was an all-female company, which seems... Because, you know, women have played men's parts throughout, throughout Yeah, history. I know. It's
1: like, it's. I th- think there was a sort of disconnect in, in history. I mean, th- we, we do that all, all the time. Sometimes, mercifully, we kind of... In theatre history, I suppose, because that, that's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Theatre and history. Yeah. Theatre is of now, and history yeah. is the past. But performance history, you know, there is... Certainly during the war, the Second World War, there was a group of women who did Shakespeare plays, you know, for the usual reason, there weren't any men around, so they were driving the tractors and they were also acting Shakespeare (coughs) because that's an essential during war, of course it is. But, um, I mean, certainly it wasn't the first time I'd been asked to play a a male character in Shakespeare, but it'd never been the right moment before. And there's this strange thing that I think I mentioned earlier, sort of the zeitgeist in, in, in all these things where there's a time when people are ready for something, and at that moment it has its maximum impact and can start a sort of almost a movement to follow after it. But it's not that long ago, and yet within a few years of our finishing those plays, women are just naturally playing Shakespeare's male roles sometimes I'm not sure why whereas you know in a way you know as much as saying let's liberate these parts for all sorts of different people to play them which you know that was part of our impulse behind the all-female trilogy was to sort of allow diverse people to play parts that were traditionally done by some beautiful looking heroine you know white so we were opening that up to all sorts of people of different backgrounds, but at the same time, you've got to have a justification for why you're doing it, mm. because the audience needs that. Right. It's no good saying they've got to open their minds up. You've got to help them somewhere to lead them in, and that's why uh, the the concept of the of the prison came up to make that justification so that the audience wouldn't question it after the first few minutes. Right. Because that's always the hard part of the opening of a play. Everybody is sitting on the edge of their seat going, Who's that? How are they related to her? Getting used to a new voice, getting used to a new costume, and new, you know, they're orientating themselves in those first five minutes of any play. In that space, you don't want to alienate people, you want to help them come in. So, you know, I was absolutely behind the idea of the prison, although it started as a sort of excuse. Some people said, you don't need that excuse, just do the plays, you know, and then you thought, "Mm." but it became more than an excuse. It became that the prison was a huge metaphor for people without a voice, you know, people we were excluding from the discourse who had lots to contribute. And, And that was as important as gender bending. Right.
0: For you as an actor, reading about it, it sounds like the most magnificently expanding, expansive moment. You, you know, you've played every single traditionally female role in the canon. And you had not long, I think, played Cleopatra. And famously said you felt like you run out of road with Shakespeare. So thank God you and Philida opened the door to these traditionally male roles. I mean, was it? Did it feel like that? Did you feel as, a, as an actor... You were able to
1: find fresh air, definitely, and because of the setup, and because of the timing in my life, having just played Cleopatra, Cleopatra was an, a completely different experience from previous Shakespeare plays I'd done. Well, no, I'll take that back. I'd played some large Shakespeare heroines, you know, who have a lot of, you know, a lot of stage time, but Cleopatra, I got a taste playing Cleopatra. Of what a male actor has often had to do, which which is much more physical, right so that actually the vocal power, the energy, the running around the stage the the flitting from one mood to the another, the going from high comedy to high tragedy to the the versatility of the part, and I just understood for the first time what vocal trainers had gone on about the energy and the and the the breath you need and all that it was almost as though I'd been singing with one strand of my voice Mm. and now suddenly had to do something operatic and literally my lungs were pumping and my you know and I realized that I hadn't really had that experience that that mostly women actors don't get to do that mostly, mm. whereas men act as, you know, Coriolanus or whoever, you know, mm. they certainly get a fight somewhere in there. You know, <laughs> and they're running around and they've got to harness that energy, both vocally and physically and emotionally and everything, all in one go. Mm. And I'd very rarely had that. And it was a big moment to discover that I'd got that in me and would like to carry on. And so suddenly sort of having to play Brutus was a very good next step. But being a man, of course, what what I found interesting was that if you're playing your cards right, you are trying to empathize with your character. You're trying to, as I've said before, reach out to them, bring them into you. And to find that the common ground between me and a Roman general, you know, was a fascinating exercise. And, of course, being Shakespeare, what the common ground is, humanity, fear, love, ambition, doubt all the things that we've all got. You lock into them and you've got these wonderful words to express just that. And so whether he was a man or a woman didn't affect how I thought and felt. But of course, being a man, his role was to lead an army and make decisions that would affect people's lives. And that in itself was quite a reach for a woman. And I suddenly felt what I've called. Sympathy for the overdog, you know, that, <laughs> that it's easy to feel empathy for a victim. Yeah. It's much harder to, for a woman, to understand what it's like to have to make decisions on the battlefield.
0: About assassinating your best friend. Yeah. It begs the question, I suppose, of why not more?
1: More Shakespeare mm, more, more Shakespeare men. Yeah.
0: I mean, it sounded like
1: it was, you, you'd
0: <laughs> already created that space for yourself. I'd have and to feel that...
1: very safe with the right production and the right people, you know, yeah. because if you've done something that you feel proud of you don't want to blow it by doing something less good you know just because you enjoy playing big Shakespearean roles you know what I mean and also you know I'm very much as I said I'm an ensemble player so it would have to be led by an idea rather than Harriet gets to show off
0: sure though who doesn't want to see that <laughs> we like showing and off no but one, we don't no like it being the no one is not you just put that on the poster <laughs> Harriet shows off and people would buy tickets um but you and Phillida did you not talk about doing Macbeth originally? Um, well,
1: actually, it was me. I don't know whether she was interested. Ah. But, uh, not originally. I don't think we wanted to do it as part of the thing. No. Because what I found important about um, all three of those plays was that they were ensemble pieces. You could argue that The Tempest is very dominated by Prospero, but actually there are lots of scenes he's oh. not in. But yeah, the, the others were quite ensemble pieces that gave quite a lot of people a good turn. Mm -hmm. At one point Philadel wanted to do Hamlet and I kind of nixed it because not for me to play Hamlet, I must say, but just because there aren't enough other great roles in Hamlet for other people to do and it would become a bit of a one person exercise. It shouldn't be, but I mean that's often how Hamlet's done. And likewise I thought Macbeth was too too much about a couple and everybody around them was not it wouldn't have such a good crack at the whip, which was one of the reasons we went for Henry the Fourth, because it's such a sort of epic You know, covers the whole, you know, the whole of England from royalty to peasants, you know, to boozers in the pub. It covers the ground. But the thing was that I was curious to play Macbeth because I'd played Lady Macbeth. And I felt that so much of the work in playing Lady Macbeth was for her to understand the workings of the mind of Macbeth. And I sort of started to feel that I did understand that mind. And I wanted to literally get into that head the world needs another Macbeth, like a fish needs a bicycle, whatever the metaphor is. <laughs> but
0: but, um, but if, we, if, we, if we thought that, we'd never do anything. That's true. That's true, of, course, mean, of the, course. The play is, of course, thankfully, limitless. Of and, course. And I think the world does need your Macbeth. And <laughs> by the way, I cannot imagine this very, I think this really does go sort of to the heart of what I've been reading and understanding about you, even in this very superficial way by listening to you talk in interviews and reading tons of stuff about you. I don't think I can think of another actor as celebrated as you who would start off by saying I didn't want to play the leading part, <laughs> even though I've wanted to do it ever since I played Lady Macbeth, yeah. uh, because there weren't enough, enough good parts for other people around me.
1: Yeah, it sounds like I'm being saintly, but I'm no, not. No, no, it's no. logical I to it. me. It's logical. Okay. Because I think what we put on stage is the world, and everyone in the audience sees a different bit of that world and identifies with a different bit of that world. And of course, I've got a lot of time when I'm sitting in an audience, I'll I'll watch somebody being brilliant. But unless that one piece of brilliant acting tells me something about the world of the play or tells me something about the world I live in, and doesn't just demonstrate the versatility of that actor, I
0: don't see the point. Can I sell you the point of you doing it? (laughs) I, I, I know you probably don't need much persuading. The world does need this. I think that Beth, uniquely, is that character in Shakespeare who we cannot help but feel drawn to because of this extraordinary quality of interiority, because of how how deeply poetic to a sort of point of spirituality he is, despite being in the body of this terrifying warrior. And there's something about, as you say, that that fantastic duality of it and you, meaning Macbeth, the character, and you, Harriet, the actor, that feels made for each other. I mean, I'm sure well, you've thought that before. You're very
1: nice. I've not really known what the way in would be. And I've not really known, I've never visualized a context for it or it really happening. But theoretically, I've felt that partly because Brutus is borderline Macbeth, in that he's a very contemplative honorable warrior you know that's how he starts out and then through step by step actions he becomes a murderer and he, but he never really succumbs to that evil he he justifies that evil all the way through yeah. to his bitter end yeah. and other people justified on his behalf right. so i'm fascinated by you know the tyrants that are around and about now <sighs> who have an interiority to begin with, who have some kind of vision, you know, sometimes quite a laudable vision. And then step by step, Mm. they wade deeper and deeper into Mm. the shit. Mm. And then at that point, they can no longer look at what they're doing. And that's what interests me, is that point where Macbeth no longer soliloquizes very much. When he does, it's very negative. You know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is very sort of Mm. bleak. But it's again self-knowing, it's self-aware. But, you know, he offsets his actions against his thoughts all the way, or Shakespeare yeah. does, throughout the play. And I find that transition from sort of a human, self-aware person who even knows that they're making terrible moral choices and is aware that they're doing it. And then step by step, they can no longer even look themselves in the eye. And at that point, they can do anything, because they have no conscience, and they're completely nihilistic. You know, that's happening all over the world. Of course,
0: that's probably why, as Peter Brooks says about the plays, the great plays are like planets, they all bit closer to us, depending on our preoccupations. And Presumably, that's why you can't move from Macbeth's at the moment because yeah. it's the play yeah, about yeah, yeah. Putin. It's it the is, play about authoritarianism all over the world, you yes, know? Yes, yes. Except I think it probably dignifies Putin, Putin too I can't much. imagine yeah. him coming out well, with that. Well, Shakespeare of language.
1: dignifies all sorts of people. True. Right? But yeah, it would be. I would, would give nice. my
0: eye teeth, Harriet, to see you play
1: that part. Well, do you know now I feel too old. I think it's Lear next, if any.
0: All right, all right, all right. Lights down on act 1 of my chat with Harriet Walter, please. Please, please, please come back and join me for act 2. I really think you're going to want to because amongst a ton of other great stuff, you do not want to miss Harriet's story of meeting her childhood hero, the great ballet dancer, Rudolf Nureyev. It's so good. <laughs> How Harriet kept going after being rejected by five drama schools. What it's like to be deprived of time and power by other actors on stage, yes. And how the world expects too much from its mothers, amongst so much other stuff that was great. Come on back. Stage, stage, stage
2: door Johnny. Stage, stage,
0: stage door Johnny.
2: Stage, stage, stage door Johnny He sits in the balcony Sees play sad and funny That stage, stage door Johnny